his views on why I'd rostered him to read these names. So there we go. Talk about dealing with fear. Um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about how we deal with fear. And here's, uh, here's what you can expect out of the next 20 minutes. At the end of this 20 minutes, you will understand the anatomy of fear, and you will understand how to be fully, completely set free from fear. Okay, that's what's coming. And uh, there's a money-back guarantee. No, no. Um, that's what we're going to do. We're gonna, wh what, what causes fear, and how do we solve it? How do we live with it? How are we set free from fear? I'm going to pray and uh, ask God to help us think about this. Lord God, help us this morning to understand ourselves, our fears, and understand how you want to connect with us in the middle of all of that and how we encounter you, we find there the healing and the freedom from all our fear. So uh, give us attentive and open minds and receptive hearts to, uh, to what you have to say this morning. Amen. So I don't know what your fears are. We all have fears. Um, uh, a, a word of personal biography. I grew up in a context in, uh, in Southern Africa, in Rhodesia, and then South Africa, where, f where fear was, never, was something you never admitted to if you were a bloke. Like you just, it was, you just didn't. There was no room in my culture and family of origin for weakness or fear because we grew up in the context of a relentless fighting and violence. Uh, but what I've realized over time, of course, is that no matter what, what facade we put on, um, fears can grab a hold of our hearts and shape us and have an enormous impact on our lives. So we're going to think about this uh, in, in, great, in a bit of detail. If you, wonder, if you are wondering why on earth we're looking at this ancient text, Abraham, like what on earth does that have to do with the 21st century, with my life now? That's a good thing to, to question. Uh, last week at the start of the sermon series, I, I spent about 10 minutes explaining why we're doing that. So go onto our website um, and have a listen just to those first uh, opening comments in the sermon from last week. And uh, it's just darlingstreet.church. And you can figure that out. I'm not going to cover over that. We're just going to assume that this is an important part of Scripture for us. So let's think about the anatomy of fear. And, uh, and here is um, a way to think about it. This is uh, our core self, our God self. This is the part of our lives that God connects with, Right? And that, that is the essence of who we are. And that core self of ours experiences through life all kinds of wounds and, and pain and heartache. So what you have here is uh, we experience pain and wounds. And those pain and that wound, those wounds uh, become part of us. And so we, we have perhaps, because of our family of origin, perhaps... Um, you discovered that, you know, your mother, uh, for a whole range of her own reasons, was unable to be attached to you and you to attach to her and attentive and caring. So you felt this deep sense of abandonment and betrayal from, from a young age. So um, what you've got here is the, is the pain and fear of abandonment. 
and this is a part of you, right? And, and this is now your great fear, that you will be abandoned, you will be alone. Maybe you always felt deep shame, um, that you just weren't enough. And you carried great pain of not being enough and, and fear that you would be exposed. Um, there's a, at the heart of, uh, and, and so you, you, we all have a whole range of wounds that we carry with us and hurts that are part of our lives. At the heart of a lot of that fear, when, you, when we unpack the wounds that shape us and that carry us as part of us, they're always to do pretty much with other people. I mean, the physical fears, there are for sure fears of aging, like we all, you know, lots of us, are, you know, you're kind of scared of aging. But what are we really scared of? Well, we're really terrified of aging alone. You know, like, we, that's, we, we might be scared of uh, losing our money. But what are we really scared of? Well, we're scared that if we lose our money, people won't love us and be there for us. And we can't buy ourselves the network of support that can sustain us in community. So, uh, and this, is, this comes from our evolutionary biological history, our being made in the image of God as, as relational beings. The thing that makes us, that gives us security and safety is the community of people we're in, the relationships. And if that's threatened by any of these things, by abandonment, by not being enough, by abuse we might have encountered, by rejection, uh, that is what strikes deep, deep fear into our souls. And uh, one of the, the realities for us is that, th that this pain and the fear that is embedded in our souls as a result of this um, is, is extremely difficult to live with. So what we do is we develop a whole bunch of, um, of protectors. We want to protect ourselves from this pain, right? And so we develop strategies to protect ourselves. Some of these strategies are um, what the theorists call managers. So managers have a positive role in our lives, or, they, or what appears to be positive. And under the role of managers, we can have things like if I'm really scared of being abandoned, if my real fear is that you won't be there for me, what's a strategy that I might adopt to make sure that that never happens, that I never have to feel that fear? What, what sort of strategy could I adopt to make sure I never get abandoned? Yeah, I could keep people away. So I, I could become my protect, my manager could become, uh, I could become a great wall builder. Couldn't I? And my strategy is, and I, I manage my life by building lots of walls of professional competence and having it all together and, and just keeping everyone at a distance. I'm very good at that, right? Okay, so what else? So now, what, what's another manager? Say, you, say you're, you have this deep fear that people are going to see that you're a fraud, that you're not good enough. Always deep in your soul, you, you have the sense, I'm never enough, I'm never enough. I've never been enough. I never will be enough. How do you deal with the pain of the rejection implicit in that? What's a, what's a strategy a manager might have or you and I might adopt to address that pain? Do more overachievement? Yeah, workaholic. Yeah, so let's just... So you become a workaholic. You become a perfectionist. 
And that's aimed at trying to make sure you never feel that pain, yeah? Ah, oh, a people pleaser. So you spend your whole time just trying to please. That's, that's exactly right. I'm so glad you said that. That's fantastic. That's like the best comment I've heard all morning, Melinda. Yeah, I'm trying to please you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Am I, is it working? Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, many, yeah, many of us have that as a, as a strategy. Now, uh, the problem with those managers, those strategies, is they don't actually address the underlying cause of the pain. They just try and make sure we never feel it. And when they call the shots in our lives, we find we get held captive uh, to some very dysfunctional and toxic patterns of behaving. Now, we don't just have managers. There's another category of things we use to protect us, and they are called, in the literature, firefighters. Now, what does a firefighter do? Well, I see a fire... And so I come in and I pour a bunch of water on it or whatever the foam is and I put the fire out and then I go on and I wait until there's the next flare-up. So a firefighter is a reactive strategy that we have when the pain in our life flares up and then we mobilize that strategy. So say, um, say my strategy of keeping Melinda happy and having her like me hasn't worked and, uh, and, and I, I leave today going, oh, I'm just such a failure, I'm never enough, uh, you know, everybody hates me. Um, now, I might have a, how do I deal, what's a, what's a strategy that can get mobilized to help me in the moment deal with that pain that comes from the rejection and the fear of rejection? What's a, what's a quick fix? Alcohol. Okay, alcohol, yeah. Alcohol, drugs, shopping, uh, social media, gambling. Gosh, we're all good at those things. And confession was meant to be last night. <laughs> yeah, so the, these typically addictive behaviors uh, that, we, that we run to to try and bury the pain, put out the fire of the pain right? Uh, anything that gives us a dopamine rush, anything that releases some serotonin, anything that makes us feel good in the moment and, and hides the pain. Okay, so you go, okay, Mark, what does that have to do with Abraham? Well, listen, um, what we need is God to come into our lives here, the core part of who we are, and then each, and then God to heal all our broken, painful wounds. And when God heals the deep wounds in our lives that have at their core this fear of rejection, of not being enough, of being alone, of being separated, when God heals those things, then we are free from being ruled and run by our managers or our firefighters. So this is a paradigm in addiction uh, recovery. And it's very helpful. Eating disorders, drug and alcohol recovery, gambling, any kind of addictive process around the firefighters and, and setting people free from workaholism and all the other kind of people-pleasing stuff we also all get into. But it starts with an encounter with God where we understand and experience in our hearts and on our hearts this God and a thing about this God that will actually set us free 
and bring deep healing from the wounds that we all carry. Now, you might say to me at this point, Mark, what does this have to do with Genesis? Well, um, look at this story. It is a fabulous story. Genesis 15, Abraham, the father of faith. Uh, he started off in Genesis 12. You can read the intervening chapters. And the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. What's the first thing God says to Abraham? Do not be afraid, Abraham. Do not be afraid. God knows that even our encounter with God can tap into deep, deep fear. Because, because what happens when God shows up to Abraham? I mean, how's that for, for feeling that a spotlight is being shone on your never-enoughness? You know, like imagine you're Abraham, right? If you were here last week, you remember how that story with Abraham ended? He has this deep encounter with God. Yes, great faith. Next step, pimps out his wife. Right? So now, great encounter with God. Pimp out my wife. God shows up absolutely terrified. Because he knows he's not enough. Full of shame, full of hurt, full of his own deep existential awareness. That, um, that he is worthy of judgment, right? Like, and that is true of all of us. Like in the end, like, that is true of us. I mean, why, one of the, I sometimes think to myself, why don't people come to God? Well, because in part, it's terrifying. Like imagine coming to a being who can see through all your veneers and facades and who is perfect and just, I mean, that's going to that's gonna tap into a whole bunch of unresolved inner hurt, and we're going to be afraid. So uh, this is the first thing that God says to Abraham, because he knows deep in the human heart is this, this deep sense of fear, because we're alienated from God, we're alienated from each other. And then he says, here's the answer. Here's the answer to Abraham's fear, and friends, this is the answer to your fear and to my fear. God says, I am your shield, your very great reward. God says, I'll protect you, Abraham. I'll be there for you. I'll be your God. I will be the one who will keep you safe. I will be the one who looks after you. Um, which is phenomenal, isn't it? What a promise! You'd go, imagine if God said that to you. You'd be like, yes, that's all I needed to hear. Isn't that what you, you think you'd say that? That's all. That's it, God. I've, that's it. Well, you know, Abraham's a bit more human than that. Because the first thing which I love in this text, the first thing we see is there's a great big but. But Abraham says, Abraham says, Ah, yeah, you're going to be my reward and my shield, but I've still got this deep fear inside me, Lord, that you won't come through with your promises because, God, you've promised to be my shield and my reward. You've promised to give me a great family, descendants. But I'm childless, so how's that going to work out? Right? That's what he says, I'm, but, but I can't do that. 
You've, he says to God, who's just said, I'll be your shield and your reward. You don't have to be afraid. He goes, but, 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 you have given me no children, so I can't, I can't trust you, God, because look at my circumstances. You promised me a great family, and I'm childless. And by the way, my wife's pretty old. I mean, we'll see that in the next few chapters. Like, seriously, we already know from chapter 12, she's like, 75. You know, like, I don't have any kids. Um, so, so how can I trust you when I don't have any kids? And so then, well, God goes, okay, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some reassurances, Abraham. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He says, not, not, a, not a cousin, not a ring-in, like your own flesh and blood. I'm going to do this miraculously. He says, look and have a, check out all the stars. That's how many kids you're going to have. And so Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. So the response to God is to trust him. Like, how do we get set free from our fears in life? Well, you trust God. You trust God's promises to you. He's given Abraham a promise, and Abraham went, oh, I'm not so sure. He gives him another promise. That's the answer, right? Trust God, and you're going, to have, you're going to have more kids than you can possibly imagine. It's going to be extraordinary, Abraham. Life is going to be incredibly good. Um, and he also said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans to give this land, to take your possession of it. And then you think, well, that's fantastic. I've had the promise. I've got to trust God. I've had the promise. I've got to trust God. What's Abraham's first word back to God? But Abraham said, ah, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'm going to possess the land? I'm just not so sure that you're going to come through for me, God. I'm not so sure that you're going to come through for me. Now, um, why do you... Why do you reckon Abraham is so unsure that these promises of God will be activated and real in his life? Why is he still so afraid? He's 75? Well, his wife is. Yes, that could be it. But, but maybe, you see, maybe Abraham's pretty sure that God can do stuff. Who's Abraham a little less sure of? Yeah, himself. See, the, the structure of the promises are, well, you do this, uh, I'll do this, and, and you've got to obey me. I, and there were commands associated, and he's in a relationship with God. And Abraham knows he's got form on this, that his history is one of just great disobedience. And he's a self-serving, scared little man who'll... Pimp out his wife, not once but twice, just to save his own neck. Right? So I, I think what's going on in the text is that the big threat to God's promises being fulfilled in Abraham's life is not on God's side, it's on Abraham's side. And he's really scared. He's scared of his own disobedience. He's scared of his own faithlessness. Now, look... I know this is something you and I struggle to identify with. I mean, I personally have no trouble at all trusting God. 
my obedience on my side is perfect. I mean, any of you who know me, even vaguely, will know, of course, Mark, you are. God says something and you completely believe it and obey it. And it's, uh, no, I mean, this is the problem, right? Like he gets the promises and God reiterates them and he keeps pushing. And in the end, he's like, yeah, like actually the real problem, God, is not you. The problem is me. How many of you in your heart of hearts know the biggest threat to your relationship with God, the biggest threat to your finding freedom from fear in an encounter with God is your own heart because you know you're never enough, don't you? I know I'm never enough. Heck, I'm paid to be enough, and I'm never enough. I'm professionally religious. I've been at this 35 years. I started when I was one. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and I know I'm, I'm Abraham, man. I'm like, oh, I don't know, God. I don't know. I don't know that I can trust you. I don't think it's going to work. I'm not so sure. I'm not going to inherit all this blessing. So what does God do? And, and here's why I think this is the dynamic. God then reiterates his promise, and he does this weird covenant ceremony. Here's what it is. Um, in the ancient world, we know that what is described here is a ceremony that a conquering king would make a conquered chieftain or, or tribal leader go through. So if, you were, if you'd conquered another tribe... You were an Assyrian or a Babylonian, a Mesopotamian ruler, and your empire had expanded. You'd subjugated a tribe. You'd brought them into your empire. What you would do is you would have a great big public ceremony where the conquered lesser king would swear loyalty to you. You would swear that you would protect the king, but they would swear to you that they would provide treaties and tributes and taxes and be obedient to you. And the way this covenant was ratified was this very public ceremony, which is described here. Okay. Uh, actually, it's described here. Where, um, actually, it's described here. I knew it was described somewhere. <laughs> In the text, someone has written. So this is what would happen. You'd have the ceremony. You'd have the big king here, the little king down there. And you would, you'd get a bunch of animals. In this instance, it was a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and a dove and a young pigeon. And you'd chop them in half, right? Put them through the bandsaw. Uh, have them in two halves. Then you would recite, the, 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 the subjugated king would recite their oath of obedience. And once they'd done that, you know what they would do? They would walk between the two parts of the severed animal. Why? Because they were saying that let what has happened to the animals be done to me if I violate the terms of this covenant. The lesser king would say to the greater king, if I break my word, let me be killed. Okay, and the king says, yep, you got it. That's serious, right? So God sets this up. This is straight out of the, the literature of the ancient Near East. Everyone who read this originally would understand what was going on. Here's the great king. Here's Abraham and God setting up a covenant. He's saying, I'm promising you all this. And now he's going to ask Abraham to respond and to say that his obedience comes uh, with great blessing, but also the curse of death, execution if he fails. 
quite serious, like Abraham's scared. But then it takes an interesting turn. Something extraordinary happens. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. God did not ask Abraham to walk between the pieces. Who walked between the pieces? What do you think the smoking firepot and the blazing torch represent in the story? God. I mean, he appears later in the Bible in, in smoke and in fire and exodus. This is a common way God appears. So this story is extraordinary. It says, there's Abraham. He's ready to walk through. He's ready to say, okay, it's on me. I'll die if I fail to obey you. And then at the last minute, God says, no, I know that you cannot keep your end of the bargain, Abraham. I know you're not enough. I know that you are a faithless, selfish, scared little man. And I know that that would kill you. I know you'll never be an adequate covenant partner. So here is what God says he'll do. He says, I will be the great king. And when you fail, I will walk through the, uh, the sacrifice. I will walk through the animals to say that when you fail, I will pay the penalty for your failure. I will die in your place so you don't have to die. Okay, see, what God says is he knows that you and I are never going to be enough. We're always going to let God down. We're always going to break that relationship. So our fear, dear friends, of being rejected by God, our fear is well-founded. And it, it inevitable because, because we're hopeless, Left to our own devices. I mean, we're glorious and wonderful, but we're also hopeless. And so God says, I tell you what, I will be the one who will take the penalty, the consequences of your failure. I will be both the great king and the king who dies for you so that both sides of the covenant can be fulfilled. How does that help me with my fear? How does that help me with my fear? Have a look at this text. Skip forward 3,000 years. Jesus has come writing to the early church. There's a letter, 1 John. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. How are we set free at the core of our being from our fear? It's because we connect with a God of infinite love whose love is made real and demonstrated by the fact that he would die for us his death would pay the price, would cover over every wrongdoing that we've ever done, every bit of faithless failure that you and I have, every bit of selfishness, every, every inadequate religious impulse in our beings are covered over by the love of the God who died for us. He didn't just walk between two animals. 
that covenant ceremony was fulfilled on the cross of Calvary when God himself hung between two criminals and died. There, in space and time, paying the price, the, 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 the legal implication of this covenant that God had with humanity to do everything that we needed so we would never have to be afraid of being judged by God. You see, now, not even our own faithlessness, not even our own selfishness, not even our own failures to trust God can separate us from God because there's no judgment left for us because all of God's judgment has been absorbed into Jesus Christ on the cross. And all that is left for us is love and acceptance and an embrace by the Father. So we are enough because he is enough. We are loved because he is love. We don't look to ourselves. We don't try and work this out ourselves. I'm not even saved by my faith. I'm definitely not saved by my faith. I am saved by the faith of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus. It's what he has done. So there is, and this is the, I remember as a 20-year-old coming across this verse blew my mind away. Firstly, because I had to admit that I was afraid of an awful lot of stuff. And then secondly, I thought, it's all to do with judgment. It's all to do with my terror of being rejected, found wanting by God and by others. And now in Jesus Christ, I can understand that I don't ever have to be afraid of God rejecting me. And because of that, I don't ever have to be afraid of you rejecting me. Because I'm free. I mean, I'll still go home and worry about whether Melinda accepts me or not, just a little bit. But I know it doesn't control me because even if, you know, even if the whole world reject me, God never will. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law that says, the Torah, the covenant that says, if I, if I fail to obey God, I die. Now in Jesus Christ, I'm set free from that because I have failed. But God has died so I can live. And then the path of Christian growth to become like Jesus, and we don't have time to go into this. The path of Christian growth dear friends, is to bring this love of God in here very deeply, to know the unstoppable, unshakable, secure love of God on your heart, to let it, and then let it transform you in all these areas. So to set you free. And when it sets you free, you get set free from all this stuff. So knowing the love of Jesus sets you free from being a workaholic, sets you free from being a chronic people pleaser, sets you free from being a chronic procrastinator, sets you free from your habits and your hang-ups, your alcoholism, your drug dependence, your porn dependence, your gambling, your shopping, your eating disorder, like the, f the freedom from that is found in Jesus' death for you, applied to your hearts to set you free from judgment and then living life in the Spirit.
So uh, let's stop and pray. And uh, you might want to just ask God to come more deeply into your life, to, to give you a sense deep in your heart that you're loved by Him and that therefore there is no need for fear anymore. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, thank you that perfect love, your perfect love, your perfect dying for us, covenant-making, covenant-fulfilling love sets us free from fear. And I pray for each of us in the room this morning that we'll know that love in our lives. Give us the courage to open ourselves up, to say yes, to surrender ourselves to your love this morning. And that as we do that, may you get to work to heal the pain and the brokenness in our lives that is driven by this fear and set us free to be the kinds of human beings you've made us to be, people who can love the way you love. Make us a church family where this dynamic of freedom from fear because we're full of the love of Jesus actually changes how we treat each other. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Do this in us, not because we deserve it, but because we need you afresh this morning. Amen.